The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome, 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 family, to Brother From Another. If you're watching on Peacock TV, thank you very much. Good to have you. If you're listening on Sirius XM Channel 85, enjoy the fastest hour in radio, TV, podcasting, streaming, whatever you want to label this platform, it's all good. And if you're watching on YouTube or listening on your favorite podcast, we appreciate you. I've got so many things I want to talk to our guests about today. We'll talk with Jarrett Bell, longtime great NFL writer for USA Today. I want to ask him, why a 64-yard field goal for the win, Denver? What are you doing? I want to ask Jarrett that. I want to ask Ashley Nicole Moss how she's feeling after uh, some tremendous confidence pregame, pregame, before Cowboys, Buccaneers. And I want to talk to Charles Robinson about all things going around the NFL, including some of these uh, superhuman players who think that, oh, injury is for other people. For me, it's just a minor roadblock. Before we get to that, though, I want to ask a question to the NBA. Adam Silver, let me ask you this. I'm, 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 I'll be brief here, and we'll talk about this later uh, in the show and later in the week. What do we accomplish? What do we accomplish with Robert Sarver? If you missed the news, Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, he was under investigation. The NBA had an investigation going since November of 2021. That investigation came to a close. We found out the penalty today, and the penalty is a one-year suspension for Sarver. One year uh, cannot represent the Mercury, the Phoenix Mercury, the WNBA team, cannot represent the Phoenix Suns, the team he has owned for 17 years. And he got a $10 million fine, and $10 million fine is a maximum that can be handed out by the NBA. In addition, Sarver has to go to sensitivity training and talk about workplace behavior. Uh, and, and, that, and that's about it. I mean, essentially, that, that's about it. And that, that, that $10 million will go toward organizations that focus on uh, race and gender uh, in the workplace. Now, Sarver, I put it in the feed, NBA sent a message what message did Sarver receive? The message sent by the NBA was, I, mean, I guess it's, I, I, I guess it's, it's a rebuke, but it could have been stronger. I mean, think about it. 17 years. And, okay. They went, looked into his, his ownership and over his, and, and throughout his ownership, one of the things that, and this uh, amused me, funny, not funny at all. One of the things he said is like, hey, he used the N-word five times, at least five times, but when he was restating something, he heard somebody else say. I didn't say, I'm not saying this. I'm just telling you what somebody else said. Hey, I think this word is offensive and repulsive, but they said it. So let me just repeat what they said, even though I don't agree with it. Anyway, that was in the report. You can check it out. It's available online. So he used the N-word at least five times. Uh, he was a disaster as a, my words, not the official words of the report. He was a disaster when it came to, uh, just keeping his composure in the workplace. He made inappropriate comments about people's appearance, particularly women. Uh, he made sexual comments in the workplace. That was him. And shockingly, the NBA, and this is so naive, the NBA says, now he never, 
he never that there there was no evidence that he in particular had any kind of uh, racial issues uh, it, it, with him in the workplace. However, the report this is in their report. The report says that other people in the organization had issues with keeping their composure in the workplace, making inappropriate comments. Sound familiar? Making inappropriate comments to women, and at times making uh, racially insensitive remarks and culturally insensitive remarks. So yes, Sarver, they didn't get him on it, but this is the environment that he has fostered. This is what his organization is known for. And you know what happens? You know what happens? Organizations tend to reflect their leadership. So maybe they weren't able to get him on it. I'm skeptical. I'll say it that way. I'm skeptical. If everybody else in the organization is doing it and they had evidence that they were doing it, but they couldn't get the boss on it. Wow. What a coincidence. And last thing I say uh, before we talk about something uh, much more positive and I talked to somebody I really enjoy speaking with and Jared Bill and Jared Bell. Uh, I'll say this. I'll, let me ask you guys this question. Have you ever been to sensitivity training with people who don't believe they should be in sensitivity training. I have, I don't know what your experience is. My experience is those people who have been called into sensitivity training because they need it, but don't believe they should be there. They're hostile. They're hostile and they will talk as if they are being victimized as if the world is against them and they are in the right and everybody else is wrong. So I don't know what sensitivity training is going to do for Robert Sarver, a $10 million fine for a guy who has owned the Phoenix Suns, a very lucrative organization who's owned them for 17 years, $10 million fine. I understand that's the maximum. I'm guessing he's not going to be hurting for long. We've been waiting for the results of this organization uh, for, the, for, for this investigation. And I say, wow, what were we waiting for? What did we accomplish? A lot more on this story. But as I said, let's talk about something more positive and a person who's a lot more positive. Let's talk to Jared Bell. I love talking to Jared Bell. Love talking to Jared. What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, Michael. How you doing? It's good to see you, man. Um, As we kick off yet another NFL of a season. (laughs) Yeah, good to see you too. And I want to ask you, uh, what you were thinking last night when you saw a rookie head coach kind of watch the watch the clock just wind down, wind down, wind down. So, okay, what's going to happen? You got Russell Wilson. It's fourth down. You got to let Russell Wilson do something. Clock is winding down. And then we get down to our decision is to kick a 64-yard field goal to win the game. What were your thoughts then? It, it, it looks like it might be the bonehead move of the week because it didn't work, obviously. But you, you let the clock run down all the way to like 20 seconds before you stop it, okay? Had you let – I mean, that's why you've got Russell Wilson is to make those plays. I mean, he's in his old house. Um, I would just imagine that all of the synergy is just surrounding Russell in that moment. You don't have to get a 15-yard completion. You need to just get four or five yards – and then you right. still have all of your timeouts. You can still kick that field goal, make it closer for McManus, as good as he is. It just really stunk, to tell you the truth. And, you know, Nathaniel Hackett, his first NFL game as a head coach, right? And he's the only new head coach who lost over the weekend. And that's the way you go down. Um, well, he deserved it. You know, well, hey, listen, if you going to do that, he deserved to lose. Uh, totally, totally. With, with that decision. And you remember what Bill Parcells used to say, you are what your record says you are. So this is on Nathaniel Hackett's record because you take the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands in that moment. It just, it's beyond me. It really is. I'm dumbfounded. Don't know what they were thinking. And even, like I say, the clock management leading up to the kick was atrocious. So Nathaniel Hackett, uh, he tried to explain it in the post-game <laughs> news conference. I wasn't very convinced by it. So there you are. You're 0-1 as a new coach, and and these are the decisions that win or lose games. So if, if you look at this, 
you know, the Broncos had several opportunities. It did come down to this. It shouldn't have come down to it. They had, uh, they had their way and a lot of a, a lot of times just moving the ball. You look at the yardage they finished with after the game compared to Seattle's. They had ease. They were moving the ball up and down the field with ease until they got to the red zone and specifically until they got inside the 10 and in some cases inside the three and two and then they just <laughs> fell apart. Do you think that Denver is who Denver showed itself to be last night? And do you think the Seattle is Seattle? Uh, who showed itself, uh, you know, looked like a decent team last night. Do you think both of these teams are what they looked like last night? Well, I, I see the potential in both. I mean, I see the potential in the Denver Broncos. And, yeah, you lose – they had a stat where it's it's happened like only once in the last like 30, 40 years where somebody has fumbled inside the five twice or whatever. So you don't expect that to happen every week. So good sign for for Denver to be able to move the ball and you kind of see what Russell Wilson brings to that whole equation. But I'm more impressed with Seattle and Geno Smith, okay, because Geno Smith has been written off for years. Uh, Here's a guy who has been in the system playing backup behind Russell Wilson for, what, three, four years or whatever, and now he gets his opportunity, and he didn't mess it up. I mean – you know, he didn't put up monster numbers, but he made some heck of a plays. He didn't make any bad mistakes. So, you know, Geno Smith and the Seahawks um, really showed me something that um, you're talking about a team, if they could, you know, have that running game. Remember, that, that offensive line has been such a problem in Seattle um, for for many years, really. And, you know, they came to ball last night. The defensive line was pretty good, too. And so if I'm the Seattle Seahawks and the 12s up there, I'm really excited that, you know, we've got a chance to, you know, to really be competitive this year. It's one game, one week. We know it. But, you know, we saw something in Geno Smith and the Seahawks last night because they still have some of those same playmakers, DK Metcalf and, uh, you know, Tyler Lockett. So you've got that to work with. And then Geno was just working with those those tight ends last night. Like it was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, connected, pretty special. So, um, yeah, I'm bullish on the Seahawks, at least after one week. Well, if you look at it, you know, you look at the completion percentage for both of them, you know, great night. Geno, 82%. But Russell at times, and they said it during the broadcast, I think Troy Aikman probably made the point like a half dozen times. He said, I'm really stunned that Russell hasn't been able to take advantage of some of the youth in the Seattle secondary. He's got some young corners. Why isn't he testing these guys? What do you think it was? Do you give credit to Seattle and Pete Carroll and his defensive staff? Or uh, was, was the Denver approach a little too conservative unnecessarily? Yeah, it may have been a little too conservative, especially when you look at how it ended, right? So you've got Russell Wilson. You've you know, made this huge investment to get him. And, hey, we heard it for how many years, Michael? Let Russell cook, right? Well, <laughs> that champ may move on to Denver now because, you know, like you said, there were opportunities that, that seemed to be there. But still in all, you go back to the turnovers in terms of, you know, what really lost the game besides that, end of the game fiasco. You know, they had their opportunity. So, uh, again, I don't know if you, you want to overreact and say that, uh, you know, Russell is not uh, going to be able to take advantage of all the weapons, of the weapons that he has there. It's just you've got to close the deal when you have to. And that's where they really failed last night. I'm going to get you. I had your, your, your colleague uh, Mike Jones on yesterday and last week, and I know he's very excited. Uh, he's excited about the Bills as AFC East champions. He doesn't have the Bills winning the Super Bowl. How about you? I mean, everybody loves the Buffalo Bills. I have not heard this much love for Buffalo from NFL writers like you to Vegas. Everybody is hot on, on the Buffalo Bills. How about you? Who's your, who's your team to watch this year? Yeah, yeah, I like Buffalo from the standpoint that we've seen them develop over a couple, three years, right? And they just keep adding pieces and gaining confidence, right? And so you bring Von Miller to the defense, which was a really good number one ranked defense, and you've got to be better. Uh, What a statement they made on Thursday night against the Rams. But here's my caution about Buffalo. You are still going to have to beat Kansas City, and there's always going to be another team. 
I look at the Baltimore Ravens and I think they are sneaky dangerous. Now, the Ravens lost a playoff game at Buffalo year before last, right? And so now you've got to maybe do that again if you're Buffalo, beat them again. So it's way too early just to, to really stamp anybody as a Super Bowl contender. But for one week, for all that they did in the offseason, for how they've built over the past couple of years, yeah, they're going to be in that mix. We know that. Um, so it, what a great statement for them in week one. But it's just too early to really kind of crown a Super Bowl champ right now. But they will be – but you know they're going to be three or four teams, right? And right. Buffalo's won. I think Tennessee showed us again that they are a fraud, right? And so Ooh, let's, let's – you know, Strong and, words. A fraud. Yeah, huh? and, well, when you're talking about a Super Bowl level, I mean, they had their opportunity last year. But I think Kansas City – really showed us something without Tyreek Hill. And, yeah, how do you take Tyreek Hill out of, you know, an explosive offense and expect to still be good? Well, you have other playmakers step up. You still have Patrick Mahomes. Now he has more options, different things he can do so he can expand the offense in in different ways. And, um, yeah, you never want to say take Tyreek Hill out of it and and you're going to just be okay. But that's kind of the challenge for the Kansas city chiefs is to, to really keep that offense moving without Tyreek Hill. And so I think Kansas city is still going to be that team that, that Buffalo is going to have to prove that it could beat. Now they almost did it last year, but you know, we'll see. You know, Jared, you, you mentioned Baltimore and it brings to mind the Lamar Jackson contract negotiations. And I've always <laughs> said this to people, look, uh, I, I would not be uh, I, I'm in this business the sports journalism business for a reason, but it's not the business side of it. I'm not really a business minded person. I, 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 I do okay with it, but I would not excel at, at business. I don't believe that. So and, and part of the reason part of the reason Jared I've, I've done some self scouting on this. I'm too idealistic. So if I'm representing myself and I'm dealing with an organization like the Baltimore Ravens, I'm representing myself. And they love they say they love me. I love them. Oh, yeah, we want to be here together and we'll get this done. I'm thinking that my conversations with them are private or confidential. I haven't leaked a thing. I'm just talking to them. And all of a sudden, before the season starts, we said we're suspending our talks and we'll get this thing worked out. Okay, that's nice and beautiful. Nice little family business. All of a sudden, I, I hear that the terms are out there for people like you and me to discuss and that, you know, sources say that the Ravens offered Lamar $250 million and 133 million guaranteed, but he wanted Deshaun Watson contract. Could this be a deal breaker? Cause I know if it were me, I'd be like, what? Like, I would take it personally. It's not just business. Now, now it's personal because you, you positioned it as this personal family thing. And then you go behind my back and leak a story. Am I all all wet on this? How do you see it? No, no, I, I think that's a wonderful point, Mike. I really do. I think it's, you know, it, it's very relevant in the grand scheme of things because for so long we have not heard details come out in terms of the specifics of what was being discussed between Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. And like you said, now all of a sudden you're hearing these terms and you know they didn't come from Lamar Jackson. So you look at the team, you point the finger there. It helps his leverage to tell you the truth. That if, if you know, from the standpoint that um, he's going to want to play hardball, go back to, to last spring when Deshaun Watson got his contract, right? And um, everybody was just really stunned by not only the number, but the fact that it was guaranteed, right? Well, the Ravens owner, Steve Bashotti, came out at that time at the NFL meetings and said, no way are we going to, you know, want to put that kind of guarantee on any contract. And it kind of messes up the whole deal. Now, I'm paraphrasing exactly what he said, but that was a tone of his remarks. And I think that has been the crux of the issue. Even though they guaranteed a significant portion, it still wasn't 100% guaranteed. And I think this is really going to be um, a measuring stick in terms of how some of these contracts get done in the NFL moving forward. I mean, we've heard players talk about wanting guaranteed contracts, and especially the star players, right, for so long. Kirk Cousins got it. Now Deshaun Watson gets it. Some of the other big contracts, Russell Wilson being one of them, um, did not 
rise to the 100% guaranteed level. Well, that's what Lamar wants. And uh, it, from everything that I could tell, right? Um, right, that's right. And so um, that's, it's, it's definitely going to be um, the, the line in the sand that either gets resolved next year. They'll put the franchise tag on him, I'm assuming, unless he gets hurt, right? What if, what if, you know, we, we saw what happened with Dak Prescott a couple years ago. He got hurt. The Cowboys still negotiated with him as if he didn't get hurt. But that doesn't mean the Baltimore Ravens will do the same thing if something happens to Lamar Jackson. So obviously, and he knows this, there's this risk that he has by not having a deal right now. But he's sticking to his principles. And For the life of me, Michael, I think if he had an agent, it it would it would definitely help in terms of um, him being able to to not be in the middle of it, to allow someone else to do that talking for him. But, um, you know, Lamar beats to his his own tune sometimes and 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 you can't knock him for his principles. So, um, yeah, this is going to go on. But the point you make about where the information came from in this case, because now all of a sudden it really looks like. You know, the Ravens are playing a PR game. They want to justify yeah. why their quarterback is not done. They want to get public sentiment on their side. And, yeah, I think it is wrong when you talk about kind of how this whole thing has has kind of transpired over, you know, many months with both sides really keeping to the vest when it came to confidentiality. And now all of a sudden it's it, stuff is getting out there. Yeah, not not right, not good. Well, well, speaking of confidentiality, and this is the last thing uh, I'll say before I let you go. Confidentiality went out the window uh, at the beginning of the pandemic 2020 because we had Zoom and we could kind of peek into people's workspaces and homes. And I'm peeking into your workspace right now. And I see, I'm so nostalgic. I see an old school USA Today paper box. I love that. How, How long have you had that? That thing is fantastic. Great oh, job. Thanks. That's a <laughs> no, no thanks, Michael. And, and and it is a conversation piece. Um it, it's funny because um I've had it for about five years and USA Today um offered them to the employees a few years ago after they got new new uh boxes, you know, a few years ago. And so um so yeah, I grabbed one. It was it, it was definitely one that I wanted to have, but it was sitting in the garage for a long time. And I'll tell you, I, I showed it to garage. Pam Oliver um when I moved here to Atlanta last year and she just yeah. thought it was the, like the great it was in my garage and and, and I showed her some pictures or whatever and she was like, oh no, that is just classic. You've got to have that. And so that's where the idea came to kind of put it in my office here uh, was from, from Pam saying, yeah, you've got to have some, you know, some decor and, and, you know, some nostalgia going on. So that is, it, it just served its purpose again to be a conversation piece. You know, USA Today's 40th anniversary, Michael, is on September 15th. It's coming up later on this week. And wow. so, you know, and I've been at USA Today, not for the whole 40, but I was, I got there the first year it made a profit, right? So I'm, I, I think there may have been something, <laughs> you talk about yeah. something to oh, that. There it is. But Coincidence? Po- Coincidence? Not yeah, at all. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but point being, you know, very proud to be associated with the, that brand um, for, for so many years. And and so, um, yeah, as this anniversary approaches, have kind of reflected a little bit on that. But I'm glad you noticed the the, the, the box because of you can't you can't find them on the news news corners uh, on the street corners anymore. Hey man, that's a piece of Americana, man. You better hold on to that, hold on to yeah. that, and keep that secure at all times. Jared Bell, always good to see you. Always good to hear you. We'll talk with you again, I'm sure, before this uh, season ends. And, uh, and and lots of other storylines develop. Thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, yeah. There's always something, right? I, That's right. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate you having me, man. Anytime. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. 
Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. I saw this on Instagram. And I said, wow, what confidence. What confidence. Ashley Nicole Moss rocking the number four Dak Prescott jersey. And it's just like, oh, yeah, we're the Cowboys. And then, and then we have this. <laughs> I'm not laughing at the injury. I'm just laughing at the reaction. The reaction from ultimate Cowboys fan, commentator, observer, <laughs> Ashley Nicole Moss. So, I, I look at you, and it doesn't look like you've been crying. Uh, it doesn't look like you've had any sleepless nights. How are you processing and dealing with the loss of your quarterback? It's not great. It's so funny, that Instagram picture, because last season I posted a picture before week one or before the game started week one, and we played the Bucks last year as well, which is a different conversation, and we ended up losing. And it was a Ezekiel Elliott jersey last season, and somebody photoshopped an L instead of a twenty-one on the jersey, and a <laughs> I photo went that. viral. That's right. And here I am again, the same team, same situation, except a lot worse. It's um, it's very, it's gut wrenching. It's it's disappointing. It's it's devastating. Not even just as a fan, but Dak Prescott. I mean, it's so hard to root against him. Everything that he's persevered through. He's the nicest guy. He's so polite, so charismatic. Even if you're not a Cowboys fan, it's hard to dislike him. Um, so it's just it sucks to just see him have to fight back from another injury and I think that when you're a Cowboys fan obviously it hurts even more because you were already apprehensive going into the season right you were already apprehensive going into this game because we look drastically different offensively than we did last year um so you held out hope but you were also expecting for the worst but this I think exceeded everybody's you know preparation for the worst this is just a very very bad situation all right, and you mentioned last year, and, and uh, first of all, that game last year, I remember it vividly, and there was a point we in the close. game, I said, well, we were close. <laughs> oh, I know, not only that, I think there was a situation, maybe it was fourth, I, okay, maybe it's not so vivid, I don't remember vividly, I know it was fourth down, and I thought the Cowboys should have gone for it, they kept yes. the field goal instead, yes. Tom Brady gets the ball, they come down, they lose. I'm like, wait a minute. If you're going to play against Tom Brady, you're going to have to go for touchdowns. Go for it on fourth down. They, they were moving the ball. Like, yeah. Dak was incredible in that game. What did he throw incredible. for? Like, 400, 400 yards? And it was, his, was, first, it was his first, that was his first game back from injury. And it's right. just, it's such a weird poetic, you know, type of storyline that now he's facing that same team that he was this close to beating last season where he came back from injury, and now he's injured. Now he's facing an injury after facing that same team he almost beat fresh off of one. It's just, it's, you, can't write, you can't make this stuff up. It's, it's insane. How did you feel about, uh, and I don't think I've really talked to you about this, we just, we just saw the news happen and we just kept going forward without any commentary. You mentioned last year, Yes, they did have CeeDee Lamb, but they also mm. had Amari Cooper. And when they trade Cooper to the Browns, just like, hey, CeeDee Lamb is ready for the number one spot. Did you? I know, I know it's only one game, but did you agree with that decision at the time? And if you did, are you now <laughs> changing your mind on how you felt about it? I didn't agree with it at all. Here's the thing. If you're going to go ahead and trade a wide receiver at the caliber of Amari Cooper, then your game plan should be to be able to bring somebody in who's of that same caliber. It's one thing if you don't feel like he fits in your scheme and you want a different receiver of that same standard, but you didn't really get any better at the receiving core. You just move a guy who honestly is not ready to be your number one option yet into that number one option, but everybody surrounding him is not better than what you lost. So I just didn't understand the rationale. Obviously Gallup is not back yet. He's expected to be back week four, week five. That's still not enough. And then on top of that, with all the veteran receivers that are out there that you can get for the vet minimum, 
Jerry Jones not going after one of them is just an asinine decision to me. I don't understand the rationale. I don't understand the blueprint. You have Odell Beckham. You have Antonio Brown. You have some other guys out there. That's not going to cost you like an absorbent amount of money. Like I said, you can sign them for the vet minimum, but it's going to make a drastic difference in your offense because what happened, and I tweeted this a few weeks ago before the season even started, What's going to happen with not getting a veteran receiver is exactly what ended up happening. CeeDee Lamb got locked up every single time, you know, Dak had the ball in his hand. The offensive line is not good enough to protect um, Dak long enough for him to get a pass off. Even if he could get a pass off, if your number one option isn't available, you can't really trust the other guys. They're just not there yet. So he's scrambling on every play. You have to exhaust your run game that's eventually going to go ahead and become weary and not work throughout four quarters of football. Anybody could see the writing on the wall if you've been watching football longer than a year. Well, listen, I'm not even a Cowboys fan, Ashley. And I told Michael Smith yesterday, I said, well, you know, given the division that they play in and given the talent that's on the roster, I still think they have a talented roster. Uh, they can, they can have a winning record or a 500 record without Dak. And that's a non-Cowboys fan saying that. And you sound like you disagree with me. I, I'm listening to you, and I'm ready to say they can't win, pack it up, season's over. That's what it sounds I mean, like any, you're any, any Anything is possible in the NFC East. We call it the NFL's reality show, right? You can never really count out anything being a possibility in the NFC East. But here's my issue. If I had the offense that I had last season with my backup quarterback of Cooper Rush, I would say absolutely, because the defense is good enough to keep you in every single game. But the offense, I mean, Cooper Rush is not a miracle worker. If Dak Prescott couldn't go ahead and score more than three points with this offense. What makes you think your backup quarterback is going to be any more successful in doing that? It's just the weapons aren't there. Tough opponent. Tough opponent, too. Now, you got to keep that in mind. They played now with a defensive-minded head coach. Think about it. Last year, Bruce Arians, you know, no risk it, no biscuit. They're not really a a defensive-minded coach, a team, starting with the head coach they are now with Todd Bowles. Excuse me. I think it's just a different vibe with Tampa. It's not going to be tough sledding like this every week for the Cowboys. I mean, you'll obviously you'll have some games, especially those you know division games that are going to be a little bit easier because the Giants, you know, are going to are not the best team. They're going through a lot of changes. The Commanders, you know, also going through a lot of changes. Philly looks good, but they did go ahead and give up a substantial lead against the Detroit Lions in Week One. So again, yeah. anything is possible in the NFC East, but you have to also look at some of the other opponents. You're looking at the Packers, the Vikings, I mean, the Titans, you can't really sleep on them. The Lions seem Mm. to be able to fight back and put up a fight. You know, you have Justin Fields and the Bears, you have the Rams. I mean, there are winnable, there are winnable games within the schedule and especially winnable games before Dak Prescott would be able to return. Um, it's just a matter of the schemes that you put your backup quarterback in for him to be successful because unless you're going to go out and get the offensive weapons that they drastically need, you know, you're going to be in the same predicament, maybe even worse with your backup quarterback. But here's my, you know, my other side of that. It's great. So let's say you go 500. Dak Prescott comes back to what? The same offense that he struggled with in week one? The team needs to be adjusted. If you go five, if if you go five hundred and he comes back to that offense, that offense is good enough. Then, okay, we went five hundred without you, Dak, and you are uh, an elite quarterback. So you take us. Uh, your backup was able to take us here, so you take us a bit further. Well, I mean, not every single game you're playing Tom Brady, though. Let's go ahead and, and put that out there. And Brady didn't look his best but you're not playing the Bucks every single week. So if they are able to go 500, and I really don't think that's a possibility. I don't mm. think they're going 500 before Dak Prescott comes back. I think if Dak comes back, he's going to have to dig them out of a semi-deep hole. Um, I just don't, my concern is him coming back to a situation that's the same. Now, if they go out in the next few weeks and get a veteran wide receiver and some O linemen that are kind of floating around and go ahead and help make this offense, 
winnable to a degree, then yeah, when that kid's back, he's going to be in a great situation. But if it's the exact same team, I don't, I don't know how you fix that. I mean, I see people talking about get Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo is not God. He's not a miracle worker. He can't even make this offense, you know, go ahead and turn that into something. You have to look at what he came out of from the 49ers. It's a drastically well-constructed offense where he literally only has to do just enough to go ahead and help them win. He gets to Dallas. He's going to have to do a lot more than just enough. That's how badly constructed this offense is. Uh, Ashley, we know you're a strong follower of the NBA as well. NBA stories, you know, all over the league. And I think we talked to you about this when the investigation first launched uh, last November with Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. We got the results of that investigation today. Sarver was fined $10 million. That's the maximum an owner can be fined. And he is suspended from league activity for one year. I said off the top, what did we really accomplish with this investigation? Right. Because and and the penalty, because we got we we learned all the things that Sarver's organization has been known for in the last seventeen years, not the last two years, the last seventeen, and this is what the NBA comes up with, and he comes out in a statement. Sarver says, "Well, although I disagree with um, you know some of the conclusions of the NBA, I will follow. I will take responsibility." No. If you disagree with it, you're not taking responsibility. You're not being accountable. What did you think when you uh, saw this news break today? It's interesting, especially given that this happened within the NBA, right? We always talk about how the NBA is so progressive and they're so ahead of the curve and things that may, you know, be okay in other sports, specifically the NFL, when we make that comparison, would never fly in the NBA. And then something like this happens and you kind of look at it like this goes against everything that the NBA claims that they stand for, that this league stands for of what's allowed, what's not allowed. And it makes you wonder why. Why did it take so long? And with all of the records that you have going years back, this is not a one-year situation. I remember when the situation happened with the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, um, where he was accused of you know some unfavorable workplace conduct. They did a full investigation, and that was only for a short window of time. This is almost t- two decades worth of accusations of just terrible workplace conduct, and then some, and that's that's the best that you can come back with. It just, it's odd coming from the NBA. If this was the NFL, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be like, well, you know, that's That's the nature of the NFL. They kind of turn the other cheek and anything to, you know, put football first. And, you know, that's not that surprising, but it definitely raises a couple of eyebrows and makes you look at the NBA a little bit sideways. And then when a statement like that comes out, it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of owners feel like they're Teflon and situations like this make you realize that they feel like that because a lot of them are. Because they are, you know, they, they, they looked at a lot of documents. Um, they looked at a, a lot of, uh, e- uh, you know, emails. They talked to human resources and, and Ashley, this is the one that just really got my attention. The investigation found that many employees didn't have allies or they didn't have, Mm. any confidentiality. They didn't have any rest when they went to human resources. So in other words, if you work for the Phoenix Suns and you see something that goes wrong or you have been, uh, you've been victimized by this horrible workplace culture, you can't go to human resources. One, human resources is not going to do anything. And two, right. human resources maybe is not going to keep your complaint, your legitimate Anonymous. complaint private. I mean, what? So so that is, that's on Sarver. All this stuff is on Sarver. They also said something in the report of, hey, Sarver himself never was racially insensitive. However, other people in his organization were. Well, I mean, they say, what's right? What's that saying? He fostered that environment, right? Right. You know, as an owner, they said that that's saying you are who you hang out with, but taking it even, you know, further when you're an owner, when you're a CEO, when you're a president, you are a reflection of the people who work for you. So if 
they're working for you and you're hiring these people, one can go ahead and then conclude that they share similar mindsets, they share similar thought processes, they share similar beliefs and foundations and moral compasses. So while your hands may be quote unquote clean when it comes to actually doing the dirty work, it's really not because you are the sole person who's responsible for bringing these people in and also letting these people go when they don't adhere to the narrative or the foundation in which you want to run your organization. So I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like that's kind of like ordering a hit on somebody and saying, oh, well, I didn't pull the trigger. Yeah, but you ordered the hit. So (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? You're just as responsible. Yeah, your hands are clean with gunpowder, but you go ahead and you ask them to do it. That doesn't mean anything to me. And it's definitely, again, it goes back to with all the information, with all the reports, with all the paperwork from years and years and years that this was the ruling that the NBA came down with is definitely disappointed because this goes against everything that this league claims and proclaims rather to be. Yep, surprising and disappointing from the NBA. But uh, you are not disappointing. Never, Ashley Nicole Moss. Always great talking with you and hanging out. You know what? You need to have more confidence in the Cowboys. You need to be like me and have <laughs> confidence in the Dallas Cowboys. I hope you will learn from my lesson and, and, and my and my vision when it comes to the professional football team in Dallas. They're going to be all right. They'll be all right. Listen, your lips to God's ears. (laughs) All right. You did see Jalen Warren in his first game action. Just what did you like about him, and is he ready for an expanded role if he has to take one? You know, he didn't urinate down his leg, man. That's a great place to begin. You know, um, and that's capable of happening for a young guy. And so, but I think that's been indicative of him, of him throughout this process. And that's why he's gone from being an undrafted guy to a guy that's carving a role out for himself. <laughs> hey, listen, man. Look, Charles Robinson, I always tell people, hey, just give me Mike Tomlin press conferences. And like, if there's a little bit of a lull, just put, put on a Mike Tomlin press conference. And I'm good to go. Now that was entertaining. I'm not sure he's entertained by what's happening with his best defensive player, though. You see uh, any scenario in which Pittsburgh continues this high defensive uh, play without T.J. Watt for six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks? I mean, it's going to be extremely difficult. I, if there's any, there's a reason why. You're talking about him as the reigning defensive player of the year, and it's not just the fact that he rolled up, you know, massive sack total last year, but um, he's probably as close as you can get to Aaron Donald. There are maybe three or four guys in the league defensively where um, really the scheme is ultimately built around what they can do. And he's one of those guys that they can move him around to help confuse opposing offenses. Um, he's never out of a play. I think if you watch that game, Um, it was terrible to see him go out, particularly after the interception. Like, he's one of these players that um, if he's not getting involved from a pass rush perspective, um, to see him jump up, time that, you know, intercept the football, forces fumbles. I mean, he literally does almost everything an edge defender could. Um, So to take him out of the mix, I mean, that's that's pretty difficult for the Steelers. But that said – I I tell people this every season, and this season in particular, um, Mike Tomlin has a huge uh, hurdle in front of him from a coaching perspective, particularly considering what's going on at the quarterback position. And yet every single season, um, Mike Tomlin seems to show up, coach the Steelers well. There's a reason why he has no losing record on his resume. And I think if you go back and look at that game, it's another example of, you know, Mike Tomlin and, and a Steelers defense showing up when people, I think, expected this to be um, a down year for Pittsburgh. Now, I know uh, every player in the NFL has the right to get a, a second, third, fourth opinion if they want to, especially a second opinion uh, from what the team doctor is saying. So I get it for, for T.J. Watt, but if you're the Steelers, are you discouraging him? I mean, you got, you got this guy signed to a long-term deal. Yeah. Torn pectoral muscle. I'm going to discourage you from like trying to go out and play. We need you, but we need you long term too. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it, it gets a little dicey when, um, you know, it's part of the struggle that you see between, you know, teams and players and it, it can go in both directions. We often hear, a, you know, fallout from players feeling like, well, maybe the team physicians or the doctors or the trainers push me back too early. Um, this is the flip side of that, where you have players who want to keep themselves on the field. And as you said, we'll seek second or third medical opinions. And I think when you get onto the third opinion, that's when the team steps in and says, okay, like how long are we going to push this before, you know, you finally listen. Um, I, I think they'll be careful with it. I, I just, as you said, they know just like the Rams know with Aaron Donald, um, just like let's say the Browns know with Miles Garrett, their the teams are going to handle their superstars, despite the fact that they're paying these guys 20 to $25 million a year, $27 million a year for the best edge defenders. Now $30 million a year for the best defensive player in football. Now um, they're going to play it safe because they know the window is open as long as those players are healthy and on the field and Watt falls into that category where the Steelers ultimately are thinking long-term. They're not going to sacrifice him for a 2022 that in effect is sort of a pivot year for them anyway, not only at the quarterback position, but they have other positions on the field that they're still trying to sort out and figure out where they're going in the future, even defensively. You know, Mike Tomlin in that great clip talked about a player not urinating down his leg. Did Nathaniel Hackett do that last night? In Seattle, I'm still trying to figure out what happened there. Yeah. What did you see? I think it's surprising. You know, I know that he said, hey, we got into the range we wanted to with a 64-yard field goal. That's where we felt comfortable. I, I just, I think I'm of the mind that when you go out and you get a Russell Wilson, um, I know it's fourth and five, but in that scenario, when you look at the percentages, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They, I think the team did look at the percentages. I think the team thought a 64-yard field goal um, is potentially a higher percentage play in this moment. But I just disagree when the, the player you're comparing it to is the quarterback that you just brought in to be your centerpiece to make plays. Um, I, I would not have taken it out of Russell Wilson's hands at that point. And frankly, I think it's a far more defensible position for, for Nathaniel Hackett afterward when he says look we went out and we got this guy to be our centerpiece we're always going to lean on him it's like you know michael jordan kobe bryant lebron james they're going to have their ball they're going to have the ball in their hands when it matters in the closing seconds and if they miss a shot they miss a shot guess what they're going to get the opportunity again the next time that that happens russell wilson to me is that kind of a player that's what you brought him in to be and yeah so i'm not a big fan of of taking it out of his hands and you know he's getting criticized right now i think rightfully and we'll see if he learns from it. i want to get your uh your sustainability polls who's leading the sustainability polls of surprising one and oh teams uh whether it's chicago at one and oh minnesota at one and oh the cleveland browns right at one and oh uh seattle like is there anybody who's who's uh, the Giants, anybody you look at and say, wait a minute, Ooh, yeah. I didn't have them really doing that well, but now look at them. I, I would say this, first off, I, uh, a thing that I think I'm now learning about year one, or excuse me, game one since COVID is we went through COVID and all these teams stopped, just said effectively, 95% of our starters, we're really not going to play in the preseason. We're not, we're not going to put them out there. We'll practice, we'll have joint practices, but we're not going to worry about um, exposing guys in games to potential injury. I think we are seeing the effect. I, I'll put it to you this way. I believe week one less than ever before because I think that I see a number of teams out here. I just don't believe what I'm seeing. I'm like, I, I'll give you the example, the Rams. I don't think the Rams are necessarily that team. The Bengals, I don't think Joe Burrow is necessarily that player in week one. I think it's because you have teams that are saying, we're not playing any of our guys. And if that means we go through week one kind of figuring out a little bit, maybe two weeks figuring out a little bit on Sundays, we'll deal with that. So I think you're seeing performances, um, subpar performances from some teams that I don't necessarily believe. Now, the flip side of that, in terms of sustainability, I like Minnesota. I think that Min I thought Minnesota was one of those teams where I, when I went through Minnesota's camp, um, I looked at what Kevin O'Connell um, wants to do there in terms of the play calling. He has a great roster, particularly offensively. 
Um, Kirk Cousins, for as much as we beat up Kirk Cousins, he is someone who can be very, particularly in the in the regular season, very proficient passer. Um, you know, Justin Jefferson thinks he's he thinks he's the best wide receiver in the game. I think you're going to have a hard time denying that this season. And so when I looked at the Vikings going through, I thought, hey, this this team's got a chance to be better maybe than people think. And and for it to be real and tangible, what I thought was really fun to watch was Kevin O'Connell didn't show anything offensively in the preseason, nothing at all. And then as soon as we see him play against the Packers, you got, you know, Jefferson going in motion. You have uh, some of the play action stuff. I, I saw a lot of pieces of the Rams offense instantaneously. And what I thought in my mind was, that's the Kevin O'Connell that Sean McVay was upset to lose. That's the play caller. That's the guy who would have been the OC for the Rams this year, dialing everything up offensively. He's just doing it for Minnesota. And I thought he did it really well. I think what we saw from Minnesota against Green Bay was actually real. I think Minnesota is going to be a better team than maybe people thought. Hmm. Can't wait to see it. Charles, I can't wait to speak with you again. Always a pleasure, my friend. We'll talk with you soon. So happy to have the regular season started again. We are back. Me I'm too. so excited. Me too. There's so much, so much to talk about, man. And happy right. to have a one-on-one conversation too. Yes, it's <laughs> nice. It's an A to B conversation. It's nice every once in a while. <laughs> every once in a while. song I am a woman I am an artist and I know where my voice That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph uh, winning an Emmy last night for work on Abbott Elementary. And in the story there, look, as you know, as you can hear, uh, she's got a Broadway background, great voice. But she's been in the game for a long time. She is in her mid-60s, and she never thought she was going to achieve this moment. She got, to, she got there. She was shocked. And she celebrated in song, uh, just a great moment and an inspiring moment too. She was trying to encourage others to, to not give up on their dreams. All right, enjoy spending time with you. See you tomorrow. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.